This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Good morning, everyone. As we start the study this morning, I just want to ask everybody to do a little mental exercise with me. Uh, have you ever done something, particularly to somebody, uh, that was bad enough that you felt that your relationship with them was irreparably damaged? And if you have, then perhaps you can think of how you may have felt during that time. Perhaps you went and you apologized to them, but it was clear that while they would forgive, or maybe they wouldn't forgive, they certainly wouldn't forget, and things weren't going to be the same again. You know, I'm mindful of broken marriages. I'm mindful of broken relationships between parents and children when I think of this. And I think about sometimes criminals who are in prison, and you think about... Imagine the worst criminal you can imagine. Somebody has done something just absolutely horrific, and it's all over the news because in our nation we seem to thrive on bad news, and the coverage is all terrible. And you find yourself oftentimes, if the Holy Spirit isn't working powerfully in you, looking at that person thinking, what a horrible human being, fit for nothing other than death, and then you'll see a follow-up interview, and it'll be the offender's mother. And inevitably, they almost always say the same thing. They say, well, he was a, a good boy. I remember him whenever he was the apple of my eye, when he was an innocent youth. And they still love them. And in that moment, you think maybe initially, how can anybody still love this person? And yet... That mother, or perhaps father, does. And then you think about God. And all the times that we do things, and bear in mind, even the smallest lie, even the uh, smallest bit of idolatry, any sin, is the equivalent toward God of the most heinous thing that you can imagine one person doing to another. And it, we know this in our hearts. And there are times in our lives where we sit back and we say, I've really done it now. How can God ever forgive me? And yet he does. Because we serve a God of second chances. And we serve a God who loves us. And as I think about Israel, this is something that uh, needs to be said to the world and is something that the children of Israel, you know, modern-day Jews, that's part of the reconciliation that's needed for them to accept Jesus is this understanding that God has not forgotten them. He still has a plan for them. And the reason why we're talking about this this morning, as you know, if you're visiting, uh, we're uh, about to embark on a study of Revelation. And there's been a couple of preparatory studies for that. And this is the last one before I start delving into the first chapter of Revelation. But when one sets out to study the book of Revelation, as I've said before, there are many things that you have to consider. 
Those are things like a proper understanding of prophecy, the tribulation period, the millennial reign, the rapture, and that's why we study those things prior to beginning the book itself. There are other things that are relevant as well, though, and I think that one of the most pivotal is understanding the role that Israel fills. The reason for this is that there is a certain teaching called uh, secessionism or replacement theology. It's been very prevalent in the Church of Christ. This idea states that the nation of Israel no longer has any special relevance to God since Israel rejected their Messiah and so God divorced them, terminated his relationship with them and replaced them with a new group, the new Israel called the church. Now people who hold this view feel compelled to interpret Revelation's references to Israel in an allegorical sense and they will usually argue that references to Israel are... Uh, typically actually references to the church, which is oftentimes referred to as spiritual Israel. Now, amillennialists and some postmillennialists are oftentimes proponents of this view. With that said, it is an undeniable fact that someone who believes in replacement theology is going to come away with a completely different understanding of the book of Revelation as compared to someone who believes that the references to Israel are literally referring to, the, to national Israel. Here's a list of things said about Israel in Revelation. God will call 144,000 Jews to be sealed as his servants upon the earth. Revelation 7, 1 through 8. Revelation 14, 1 through 5. Israel will come under severe attack by the nations for 42 months. Revelation 11. Revelation 12, verse 13. A remnant of Israel will be protected by God during those 42 months, with Israel being symbolized by some suppose the woman. Revelation 12, verse 6. In verses 13 through 17. There will be two Jewish witnesses speaking forcefully in Jerusalem. Revelation 11 verse 3. During those 42 months or 1,260 days. And they will pronounce plagues upon the earth. Revelation 11 verse 6. The 42 months will conclude with the two witnesses being killed by the Antichrist. Revelation 11 verse 7. But they will be resurrected after three and a half days. Revelation 11 verses 11 through 12. God's wrath upon the earth begins in earnest with the bowl events of Revelation 16. And it concludes with all nations amassing at Armageddon to attack and destroy the remnant of Israel. Revelation 16, verses 13 through 16. Christ will visibly return to defend his people and destroy those nations. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Christ will rule as Israel's king in Zion during the thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 6. And finally... There will be a new Jerusalem, Revelation 21, verse 10. Now, if you take the amillennial view we've already talked about, you've probably checked off most or all of these things as already being fulfilled in history. And moreover, you have substituted the church for every reference to Israel. If you take the pre-trib, mid-trib, or pre-wrath views, you're likely reading Israel to mean the nation of Israel. Because you believe that the church and Israel are separate entities with divergent paths that and in the same place. And if you take the post-trib view, you may not have done either, uh, or you may have done either, or some mix of the two. Therefore, we cannot begin our study of Revelation until we examine this topic. Now, I want to say that while I do not believe that the church fully replaced Israel, I do believe we were incorporated into them. And as such, many of the promises and prophecies given to Israel 
also apply to the church by extension. Also, much has been fulfilled or realized in the church that was spoken to Israel. But that nation of Israel is also, at times, spoken of independently from the church, as I will attempt to demonstrate. I believe an accord can be found through careful study, and I would encourage each of you to pay attention to this study as you attempt to settle on your interpretive view of this book. Let's first of all look at God's eternal promises to Israel. Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 through 8. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Here we find the promise given to Abraham that he would forever be his God. And he would forever give the descendants of Abraham the land of Canaan as a possession. Abraham's descendants are first his ethnic descendants, the Jews, and then spiritually his descendants are the church. This promise was everlasting. It will never be broken. There were no qualifiers in this verse. The land of Canaan will forever belong to the children of Israel. Isaiah chapter 59 verses 20 through 21 and the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. God's covenant here is that Jacob, or the nation of Israel, will speak his words both now and forever. There is no allegory here. God is very specifically speaking to Jacob and to Jacob's ethnic descendants. And we're told that these descendants are going to experience restoration in the end times. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and I will write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now here we see a new covenant, instituted by Christ, promised to the nation of Israel and to us. Israel will know God and be forgiven. This covenant is specifically made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Why are they separated? The obvious answer is because Judah represents the eventual coming of Christ and the new covenant that would incorporate the church. But notice that the house of Israel is not excluded, it's included. And separately, the house or nation of Israel will come to know and accept Christ is the implication. I do not believe this has been fully realized yet. Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 through 5. 
For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without a teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return, and seek their God, and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. This prophecy describes very well the state of Israel ever since the temple was destroyed by Rome in 70 AD. And it has indeed been going on for many days. But notice verse 5, where it says there will be another period afterward called the last days, during which time Israel will seek the Lord, the Lord God, and David their king. Again, this accurately describes the church by extension, but it specifically is addressing the national ethnic people of Israel. We know Hosea isn't literally referring to King David either because David was already dead at the time of this prophecy. This prophecy is speaking about Jesus and the time of its fulfillment is the latter or last days. Zechariah 8 verse 23 Thus saith the Lord of hosts in those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold of all languages of the nations even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This prophecy speaks of the days when the Lord will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. With regard to those, the rem- and that's Zechariah 8, verse 3. And he's talking about the remnant of those last days, Zechariah 8, verse 6, when it will be God's intent to save his people and bring them back. Zechariah 8, verses 7 through 8. All of Zechariah chapter 8 is telling us of God's plan to restore and bless Israel. And we're told that the Jews are going to be leading the nations of the world to God in those days. There's only one way to God, and it is through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Jews have never done this, but they will. It's very possible that this prophecy is directly referring to the time when the 144,000 Jews of Revelation 7 verses 1 through 5 are spreading the gospel throughout the earth. However, if you don't believe that's talking about Jews and you believe it's talking about the church, then you get a completely different meaning out of there, don't you? We're also told that Israel will experience protection in the end times. Unless you've allegorized all references of Israel to read the church, you're going to see that God promises protection to Israel in the end times. Specifically as a means of bringing them to faith in Jesus. This protection directly corresponds to Revelation chapter 12, where we see the remnant of Israel protected during the Great Tribulation. Revelation 12, verse 6 and verse 14. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9. We're going to read verses 14 through 16. And the Lord shall be seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as lightning. And the Lord God shall blow the trumpet and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts shall defend them, and they shall devour and subdue with sling stones, and they shall drink and make a noise as through wine, and they shall be filled like bowls and as the corners of the altar. And the Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they shall be as the stones of a crown lifted up as an ensign upon his land. Here the Lord appears over Israel and protects them at the battle of Armageddon as depicted in Revelation. 
But Zechariah has more to say on this matter in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. There we see nations gathering to battle against Israel, and they are ruthlessly attacking them. Verse 2. But then the Lord fights for them, verse 3, and provides an escape for some who flee to the Mount of Olives, verses 4 through 5. Then the Lord appears with his army of holy ones, verse 5. And when he does, the day will be dark as the sun, moon, and stars dwindle, verse 6. Then light will return, verse 7. And the people of Israel will come out of hiding, verse 8, to witness the kingdom of God established and unopposed upon the earth, verse 9. Just to hammer this point home that I don't see allegory here, I want to share with you one observation that I found. Consider verses 4 through 5, where it talks about the Mount of Olives being split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. This great valley that is created will be just east of the Temple Mount of Jerusalem. This is describing a monumental geological event, and no such thing has happened yet. And here's a very interesting point. This new east-to-west valley will most likely extend from the Mount of Olives to the eastern wall of Old Jerusalem, which is what's on the board there. And if it does, it would also likely break open the eastern gate of the city, which has been sealed for centuries. Well, why is this significant? Turn to Ezekiel 44, verses 1 through 2. Then he brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary, which looketh toward the east, and it was shut. That's that gate right there. Then said the Lord unto me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter in by it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. You see, this gate was shut by the decree of the Lord, because the Lord God of Israel had entered by it. Therefore, only God can open the eastern gate again. And if he does open it, it will serve as a sign to the Jews that God has come to save them. The best part is that all of this agrees with what Christ taught about the end times in his Olivet Discourse, including the armies attacking Israel and instructions to flee to the mountain in Matthew 24, verses 15 through 21. The sun and moon go dark as the Lord returns with his army in Matthew 24, verses 29 through 30. And also with the description of the Lord's return in Revelation 14, Revelation 19, and the Millennial Kingdom in Revelation 20. There's also some New Testament doctrine about Israel and the church I want to show you. Unfortunately, there are many Christians who will discount every single thing I've said up to this point for no other reason than that it's found in the Old Testament. So let's look to the New Testament and see what is said about the relationship between Israel and the church. The most thorough exposition on this subject is found in Romans chapter 11. And I believe this one chapter alone completely dismantles the notion that Israel has no further relevance in God's eyes. There are some that will claim that Revelation is also allegorical, but such a claim does not stand up to scrutiny because Paul's purpose in writing the letter to the Romans is to explain Christian doctrine. Speaking allegorically would have undermined his purpose and sowed confusion rather than spreading the good news. Starting in Romans 11 verse 1, Paul says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. 
For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Then in Romans 11, verse 7, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Paul is saying that God didn't cast away the Jews as a whole. Some were chosen as a Jew, such as him. The rest were blinded and they rejected Christ. Romans 11, verses 8 through 10. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see, and bow down their back always. Paul's pointing out the fact here that the blinding of Israel was foretold by the prophets. And he quotes from Isaiah 29, verse 10, and Psalm 69, verses 29 through 23 to prove it. The idea Paul puts forth is that Israel was blinded as a consequence of rejecting Christ. And that led to his crucifixion. But notice that not all Jews are blinded. Some are elect. And the elect span across all time until the second coming of Christ. That means there were Jews then, now, and in the future who have, do, and will accept Jesus as their Messiah. Verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their salvation is come unto their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. This is a very important statement. Paul says that the Jews didn't stumble so that they could remain fallen on the ground, hopelessly cast down and cast away from God. No, they stumbled so that the Gentiles could be brought into the fold of the people of God. And that happened so that the Jews who rejected Christ but claimed to love God would become jealous over God's attentions and then see that the only way to, see, to receive those same loving attentions is to do as the Gentiles did and accept Jesus as the Christ. Verse 12, Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentile, how much more their fullness. Isn't this marvelous? Paul points out that what the Jews meant for evil, he meant for good. His good made the whole world rich through restoration, through salvation made available to all men. But then he asks, if their fall resulted in something so marvelous, what do you think it will be like when God and His power and wisdom manages to not only save the Gentiles, but manages to bring the Jews to fulfillment as well because they too eventually accept Christ. You see, God is not finished with the Jews. And specifically, He's not finished with the Jews who were, are, and will still be blinded in the future. That's why He goes on to say in verse 17, And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do you see that? With them partakest. Boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of belief they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. 
For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but on thee, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? God is not done with the Jews. We have no right to judge or hate them. Anti-Semitism is the tool of Satan. Paul has some very strong words of admonition for his Gentile audience here. He warns them through the metaphor of an olive tree not to become arrogant or conceited toward the blinded, the fallen Jews. He warns that the Jews were natural branches and some were broken off by God so that the wild branches or the Gentiles, you and I, could be grafted in. Paul warns that the Gentile Christians should never Look upon the Jews with disdain because the Gentiles are no better. The Gentiles have received the things that Israel lacks, but only as a gift of God. Paul warns that they can be taken away from the Gentiles as well and then be given back to Israel. In fact, he goes on to say that that will happen at some point in the future. Not to say he's going to take it from the church, but there will be a time where it will no longer be the age of the Gentiles, the church age. <clears throat> Romans 11, verses 25 to 27. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Sion a del the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them when I take away their sins. Remember, when Revelation describes the tribulation, the great tribulation, specifically the last three and a half years, what we see is Israel protected and the Gentiles persecuted. Taking Romans and Revelation together, we understand that the great tribulation will be the time of Israel's restoration. You see, the blinding of Israel is partial. Not all Jews were blinded. That blinding is temporary for a time of the Gentiles to come into the kingdom of God. And when Paul says all Israel will be saved, he's actually quoting from Isaiah 59 verse 20 and Isaiah 27 verse 9. God very clearly has not forgotten these promises. Verses 28 through 32. <clears throat> As concerning the gospel... They, the Jews, are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. God has not stopped loving the Jews. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet now obtain mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. What is Paul saying in these verses? 
He's instructing the Gentile Christians how to properly view Israel. Even while they may remain enemies of the church for a season, they are beloved for the sake of the Father's original calling unto them. Paul says in verse 29 that their calling is irrevocable or without repentance, as the King James Version says. What more proof do you need that God's promises to Israel and his concern for them as a nation still stand? Scripture states it right here. You have to work hard to misinterpret this. Paul is speaking to two separate audiences about two separate peoples on two separate paths that will end up in the same place. Besides that, Paul points out that both Gentiles and Israel are guilty of disobedience. But in the end, God will see to it that he can have mercy on all through an ability to respond to the gospel because the blindness has served its purpose. That is an amazing and wonderful thing. And Paul goes on to say so in verses 33 through 36. There, Paul, who is, recording, who is recorded as saying he would willingly suffer damnation if it meant the salvation of the Jews. That man, when he thinks about the fact that God hasn't forgotten the Jews, he can no longer contain his praise for God. And he acknowledges the unfathomable depth of his wisdom, supremacy, sufficiency, and glory. You might be asking, why do I care about the Jews? I'm a Gentile. Because it speaks to the character of God. Like those opening stories I was talking about. That's the type of God we serve. And isn't that marvelous? I want to talk briefly about the church. We need a proper understanding of how it came to be and the role that it plays. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the, kings, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now since there are many who say the church replaced the Jews... I would like to examine the meaning of the word church as used by Jesus in verse 18. The word is ecclesia. It means a calling out or an assembly. It comes from, it's a compound of ek, which denotes origin or the point from which action or motion proceeds. Often it means completion. So ecclesia is a calling out, a compound of ek, which donate, denotes origin, the point of which action, the point from which action proceeds. It is a derivative of kaleo, which means to call. So let's summarize and parse these together into an easier to understand definition. The term church is a noun, but it is a noun that is wrapped in an action verb. That action being a calling out of the elect from a group of people. That group of people is the Jews. 
The Jews are from whence the church originally came. So we should take from this that the church is not a replacement of the Jews, but represents the choicest fruit taken from the cluster of the Jews, and that fruit is then used to sow a more fruitful vineyard. It's a cultivated vineyard, planned for and cared for by God. It is the church. The most important thing to note here is that the church is one of Jewish origin. The church represents the completed work in God's cultivation of his special people. And while the Jewish nation remains largely secular to this day, and they do not accept Jesus as their Messiah, that does not mean that God has disregarded all the Jews. This is why Paul said in Romans 2, verses 25-29, For circumcision verily profiteth, which means truly, really profiteth, if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, man, that's a tongue twister, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Many people take this verse to mean that the physical Jew is now held in disdain by God. And all of their markers as God's people, such as circumcision and the ordinances of Jewish law, have been replaced with spiritual markers in the church. The meaning is a bit more nuanced than that, though. Paul is answering a specific Gentile question here. These Gentiles have been told they had to look, act, and live like a Jew in order to be accepted and marked out as people of God. And Paul was simply saying that the things which marked them out as people of God are special and specific, you know, the Jews. But the Gentile did not have to become a proselyte. And a proselyte was a Gentile trying to be the fleshly picture of a Jew. They tried to live like a Jew and become a Jew even though they weren't a Jew. And by doing so, by being circumcised and observing the feast and sacrifices and whatnot, the Jews treated them as one of them. But Paul says Gentiles don't need to do that. The Gentile circumcision would be one of the heart rather than the flesh. And it would not only be just as effective in marking one out as a child of God, but it would in fact be more effective. Because the working of the Holy Spirit creates an infinitely greater change in their hearts than any mere physical marker can do. Therefore, they should not, the Gentiles, should not feel pressured, having had that superior circumcision and change of the heart to be redundant by trying to add works of the flesh to it. The Spirit already completed the work in their heart. Paul's main point is this, the Gentile and Jew alike will remain different in certain ways, but now both have effectively been marked out as God's people if and when they accept Jesus as Savior and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. (coughs) 
So what this shows is that the church and Christianity is really just a continuation of the same calling and purpose that had originally been given to the Jews. When Christ came, it divided the nation of Israel into two groups effectively. You had a larger group that ultimately rejected Jesus as the promised Christ and Savior, and you had a smaller group that recognized Jesus as the promised Christ and Savior. When the larger group rejected Christ, who was in fact their promised Messiah, they committed apostasy from the same religion that the smaller group actually fulfilled and upheld. Remember, originally everyone in the church was Jewish, and they never stopped considering themselves Jewish. They never denied anything about their Jewish faith to include worshiping in the synagogues. They believed they were demonstrating their faith by believing in their Jewish prophets. The scripture they had was the Old Testament. They saw, and I'm talking about the scripture New Testament believers had, was the Old Testament. They saw that following Christ or Christianity and true, what we'll call true Judaism, were the same thing. And the larger group was in rebellion against the religion they claimed to profess. Now Judaism today is not the same thing as Christianity. But in the very beginning, it's not as though Judaism was cast aside. Elements of it were fulfilled and continued in the proper way with the proper understanding. And it was much later down the line that we became to be called Christians. Later, there were some Jews who had formally rejected Jesus, but they came to accept him as Savior. Paul is the primary example of this. And he still considered himself a true Jew, according to Romans 2, verses 28 through 29, while at the same time referring to apostate Jews, to which he formerly belonged, as Jews who had stumbled. That's Romans 9, verses 31 through 32, and 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23. And over time, the Gentiles came to completely dominate the church, and Christianity began to be referred to falsely as an exclusively Gentile religion. But this is not a surprise because that exact thing was foretold by a Jewish prophet, Hosea 1 verse 10 and Hosea 2 verse 23. Regardless, the church does not eliminate Israel as a nation. And it also doesn't eliminate God's eternal decrees that we started out with regarding that nation. When the name Israel is used in the Bible, it is very nearly always referring to the nation descended from Jacob. When the term church is used, it is referring to those who acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. These two terms have clear and different definitions. And it's critical we grasp that as we begin to study Revelation. So when someone takes Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, which is the primary text used to say to support replacement theology they say based on this one verse which is the only time that israel is used to refer to the church they say that because it does that there that we can then replace every reference in the new testament at least to israel and in many cases the old testament with the church I believe that is an unwarranted and unnecessary excess. I'm not going to make very many comments about saying, as I've told you, 
one view or the other that I specifically agree on or not. But in this, this is a scriptural matter. The church and Israel are not the same. Israel is not cast aside. They are blinded. There is a path for them, but we are not the same. And if you try to make us the same, you are forced to allegorize most of the Bible, which is a grievous error. You will come away with misunderstanding and false doctrine if you do that. Romans 9, verses 6 through 8. talks about people from all nations, children of the flesh, children of Israel. Paul is, again, separating between the two. And what he's trying to say is that the children of the flesh were the children of the law. The children of the promise were the children who were circumcised by the Holy Spirit, as we read before. And they are both now, in some respect, considered children of God. They both have the markers that set them out as children of God. That's not to say both are living in God's will right now, but they are still both his children. You know, if you have a rebellious child as a parent, they can completely go off the rails and disrespect you and be out of your favor, but they're still your child. And no amount of saying, I disown you, I have no son, will change that. Paul's point in Romans 9, 6-8 is that being a Jew is not enough to be a recipient of God's promise. And being a Jew is not necessary for being a recipient of God's promise. The only reason that Paul made this point here is to show how the Gentiles have been incorporated into God's people. And remember something else. The Bible is a book entirely written by Jews. There are some people who try to argue that Luke was not a Jew. Um, I don't even feel that's worth discussing. It's incorrect. He was a Jew. The Bible is written by Jews. And it was written about the nation of Israel. And so it's entirely expected that when the Bible uses the word Israel, it means the nation of Israel except where it clearly indicates otherwise, and there's only one place it does that, Romans 9, 6-8. So, in conclusion, the nation of Israel is still very much dominated by the apostate view which denies Jesus as Messiah. Yet there is an increasing number of Jews moving toward Jesus. They are sometimes called uh, Messianic Jews. And the fact that the nation of Israel is even intact at all today, despite small numbers, displacements, the Holocaust, anti-Semitism, and more, that presents a very strong case that God is still protecting them. This verse that's up here, this is what I'm going to conclude with as far as Scripture goes. It's a prophecy of Moses regarding Israel. Deuteronomy 4, verses 25 through 31. When thou shalt beget children and children's children, and ye shall have remained long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves, and make a graven image, or the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God, to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, that ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land, whereunto ye go over Jordan to possess it. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it but shall be utterly destroyed. And the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen. 
whither the Lord shall lead you. And there ye shall serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. This is present day Israel. This is all of history up to now. And Moses prophesied about this in Deuteronomy. But listen to what he concluded with. He said, but if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him. If thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul, when thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God and shalt be obedient unto his voice, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers which he swore unto them. Do you remember when we read about the new covenant? And how God said, I'm going to make a new covenant. It's not the same one that I'd made with your fathers before. And he did. And it's the new covenant with Jesus Christ. But the original covenant, the one with his fathers, speaking about Abraham and Jacob, he says he will not forget it. He will not forget it. It's very clear that Moses is talking about the nation of Israel here. And their history of exile and tribulation is very clear. What I want you to notice is that the promise of their redemption is also clear. When they are in tribulation in the latter days, and I believe this is the same tribulation period documented in Revelation, if they will turn to the Lord and obey Him in accepting Jesus as Messiah, God will then remember the national everlasting covenants that he made with them he will show them mercy and he will preserve them friends God is not done with the nation of Israel but if you believe that he is then I ask you how can Deuteronomy the last portion be fulfilled if God's done if the church is the final word on it all but this is talking about the nation of Israel and the former covenants which by the way you're going to keep the land you're going to continue to be my people. My word will be in your mouth. If you believe that that's impossible, then you have a problem with this verse right here. <clears throat> now as we begin our study of Revelation in the next session, we're going to start chapter 1. If you can accept the things we've discussed this morning, it's going to help you have a much clearer picture. It may be a different picture from what you traditionally held. I used to uh, believe replacement theology. It's what I was brought up being taught. Uh, but after years of study and prayer about it and just watching what happens in the world, it's become abundantly clear to me that it is, a, it is an incorrect notion. It is a misapplication of Scripture. It is arrogant and it is conceited. And there are things, there are certain things that will stir up people more than others. This is one of them. I'll probably make some enemies today when people hear this. Because that is the strength, the force against Israel and has always been there and is still there today. It defies explanation. Why would anybody care about Israel? It doesn't make sense unless Satan still recognizes who they are. And he still recognizes that they have a part to play in future prophecy. 
And the one book we have that most thoroughly talks about the end times, Revelation, it cannot leave them out. It has to address them. And it does. Satan knows it. And that goes a long way to explain why things are the way they are. But if we want to ignore it, then that's a decision we can make. But we will not be discerning the signs and the times. And we will not be able to more clearly understand the book of Revelation because we will think that it's all finished. It's all concluded. It's about the church. It was all fulfilled historically. It all had to do with Rome, which fell. And where are we at now? We have a book that's largely useless to us. We can go read a history book anytime we want. But Revelation is detailed as a book of prophecy, which means it has future application. So I exhort you to not reduce the book of Revelation to history. It has a future, and Israel is in it. Now, as far as uh, first principles go, we talked a little bit today about the fact that there is only one way to Jesus. There is only one way for the foolishness of God's Word to begin to make sense. There's only one way for us to preserve ourselves to be called out of the Gentiles and to become marked as God's people. And that is through accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. Confess your sins. Acknowledge that you need Him. Repent of them. Decide you want to make a change. Confess His name before the whole world. Submit in obedience to the waters of baptism. Go forth. Bear fruit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit that is within you, fulfill the Great Commission. That is our lives. That's what we must do. And we just don't know how much more time we have. Revelation tells us that something's coming in the future. And we want to be ready for it. That's why we study this book. And if you are already saved, but you're struggling with the cares of life, Every day there's something else that is heaped upon our shoulders, but we're told to cast our cares upon the Lord. Let Him bear our burdens. Give it over to Christ. We're told to confess our faults one to another. We're told to lean upon one another for strength, to pray for one another. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. If that's you, then now will be a good time to come forward And make your wishes known. And if you're ready to be baptized, you do the same. Come forward as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.